As we consider what God's doing in Guatemala, to also, and as we are considering the Lord's Prayer, to pause and to recognize that the Lord's Prayer are quite likely the most repeated words in the history of the world. And they are repeated by Christians in every nation, and they have been repeated for over 2,000 years. So, we come to our text this morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus gives us his words, and he teaches us to pray like this. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you've got a footnote there. And at the bottom of the footnote, it probably says something like this. Some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would teach us to pray, that you would also this morning give us a greater appreciation for your word, for your spirit working in your church, and for your scriptures that teach us to pray. In your son's name, amen. Some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, Amen. I entitled this message, For Yours is the Glory, or I might have also put an alternate title on it that would have been everything that you wanted to know about the Lord's Prayer, but were afraid to ask, and then wish you didn't when you got the answer. That's where we're going with this this morning. Most of our time this morning will be spent on a history lesson about how the biblical texts are formed, and the reason why I'm doing so is because I want you to be informed about your faith. I want you to be equipped to understand, to know where the Bible comes from, how it comes about, and when you hear something on the History Channel or elsewhere, that you are, have a context to understand that, and in particular, that if you're a college student, that you would not be surprised when your college professors raise a variety of issues. So, we come to this passage, the ending of the Lord's Prayer, which is known as the long ending of the Lord's Prayer. And the question might be this, why do we pray for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever if it's not in the Bible? Or we could ask, why do we not pray for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and exclude what is in the Bible? Now, both of those are valid questions depending upon the assumptions that you come with. And here is the conclusion of the matter. I'll just state it up front. The conclusion of the matter is this. It's fine to pray the long ending. It is fine to not pray it. Did Jesus teach us to pray, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever? Amen. The short answer is, we don't know. But... The ending is scriptural, and scripture certainly teaches it, as we'll see in a few moments. And to dive into understanding what's going on here, there is a simple answer, and there is a complex answer. And I'm going to be following uh, some of the summary by a historian by the name of Tim LaCroix uh, this morning. The simple answer is this. 
It is good to pray, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it is okay not to pray it. Our modern Bibles omit the phrase, and if you are following along like a study Bible, you'll probably note a comment on this verse that says, the earliest manuscripts, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include this verse. And the book, uh, Understanding the Faith, which our communicants class goes through, includes, when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, a comment on this phrase that says this, these words were not from the prayer Jesus gave us, but Christians added them soon after Jesus lived, and now they are part of the Lord's Prayer. That answer is a really good guess, but it's a guess. It's an educated guess, and it's a good guess, but it's just a guess. Here's why. Is that for a very long time, indeed for almost the entire history of the Christian church, the long ending, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, has been used in the worship of the church. In 90 AD, there was a book that was written called the Didache, and the Didache was an early Christian text. It was not scripture and included a lot of information in it, and in particular, it included instructions about Christian worship. And in the guidelines about how Christians are to worship, it included the Lord's Prayer, and in particular, it included what's known as the long ending. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that long ending has been used in the worship of the Christian church for over 2,000 years. In fact, it has been used in Christian worship as long as it could possibly be used in Christian worship. For this book was written at the time when the New Testament was completed, and at the time while the apostles were still written. The words themselves, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, they themselves are derived from Scripture and are completely consistent with the teaching of Scripture. In fact, they're a summary of 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And 1 Chronicles chapter 29 says this, At the end of the prayer and the dedication of the temple, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. So again, here is the simple answer. There is nothing wrong with praying these words. It's good to pray them. If you don't pray them when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you should pray them at some other time because they are included in Scripture as a model prayer for how we are to pray. And if you've got particularly strong convictions about this, you should have charity and grace towards others who might have a conviction one way or the other on that. That is the simple answer. All right, here is the complex answer. I said that most of this morning we're going to be spent on a history lesson, and if history is not your thing, today's not your day. I'm just sorry. All right, so here is the complex answer, and then to dive into this, we have to deal with the history of the biblical text, and we also have to deal with church history, a little bit of geopolitical politics, and what happens in the Reformation. So, is this ending included in Matthew or not? And mind you, it is not included in the Luke version of the Lord's Prayer, and the debate is about whether or not it was included in Matthew. And the answer is, was it included or was it not? We don't know, but probably not. And it's a debate among biblical scholars, and most likely it was not original to Matthew. But again, that is a guess. 
It is a very educated guess, but at the best, it is a guess. Here's how this comes about. The New Testament that I have before me, that's in the pews before you, the New Testament is written from the Greek, but it wasn't written from one Greek manuscript. Rather, what happened is that there was a variety of manuscripts, early copies, and they were pulled together into one version that was most consistent. Those versions that were pulled together contained a grouping of ancient manuscripts, some from the, called the Byzantine Collection because they were from Constantinople, and others called the Alexandrian Collection because they were from Alexandria in, North, in northern Africa. And so there are these two different families of manuscripts. And the Bible, the New Testament that's before you, is predominantly relies upon the Alexandrian manuscripts. And between these two different sets of manuscripts, they completely agree with one another on over 99% of the text and even the letters of the versions of the manuscripts. There are a couple minor places where they differ. The Lord's Prayer is one of them. Now, the Byzantine collection of texts, this is a picture of one of the Byzantine texts of the Lord's Prayer, the Byzantine collection of texts has, there are far more copies of the Byzantine manuscripts than the Alexandrian manuscripts, as you can see in this, in this graph here. There are far more copies of them. But the oldest Byzantine manuscript comes from about the 4th century. And it was the Byzantine collection of manuscripts that became the basis for the English translations at the Reformation, including the King James Version, the Geneva, also the Tyndale Translation. The Alexandrian text, and this is the same chart as before, just organized differently, uh, centuries on the left-hand side, the number of texts is the width, okay? The Alexandrian texts, there are far fewer of them. However, the texts that we have were written much earlier, all the way down to the second century, into the hundreds of when those texts were dated from. Generally, what happens is that scholars prefer the Alexandrian texts Each decision, if something's a question, is made independently. But generally, the Alexandrian text is preferred because it's much earlier, and the idea is that there would be much less time for an error to be introduced. It is also true that the Alexandrian texts have uh, far fewer variations in them than the Byzantine texts in the collection between them. And overall, there are tremendous agreements between them. And the New Testament that you have before you, that would be the NIV, the RSV, the ESV, the NASB, heavily relies upon the Alexandrian text, but the King James Version of the Bible is exclusively drawn from the Byzantine collection of the text, the earliest one being from the 4th century. All right, that's a little bit about the history of biblical texts. If you've glazed over, brace yourself, it's about to get worse. All right, here is the history of the church in terms of how this developed. In the 4th century, there was a man by the name of Jerome, who was one of the early church fathers. And Jerome was an incredible scholar. Um, And what Jerome did is that there were several several different manuscripts of Hebrew and Greek, and he wanted to have a version that people could understand, namely Latin. So Jerome gathered together all of the available manuscripts that he could gather together, and he combined those things to come up with a Latin translation from the Greek and Hebrew. Now, Jerome was an excellent scholar. He used what he had, and his translation was pretty good, as long as you can read Latin. 
And Jerome's version, which became known as the Vulgate, um, did not include the phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The other question about Jerome is why on earth he used human skulls as paperweights is one of the great mysteries, one of, the great mysteries of, of history. But subsequently what happened is that because of the reliance on Latin in Europe, the Latin and the Latin Vulgate translation, in the European and, North and the North, Northern Mediterranean, there was, uh, the Greek texts were not studied, nor were they reproduced as they were, as much as they were in the eastern parts of the empire. So that's occurred in the 4th century, the Latin Vulgate. Fast forward, uh, fast forward 700 years to 1054. And in 1054, there's a geopolitical event called the Great Schism. And this was a schism between the Western Church and the Eastern Church. And this had a little bit of a political cause because the Roman Empire had divided into two, two empires, East and West. But the other thing that had happened when, in the Great Schism is that the Western Church, which is in red on the screen, the Western Church, headed by the Bishop of Rome, separated from the four other bishops of Christendom. That would be the Bishop of Constantinople, and again, that was long before it became Istanbul. Um, Constantinople, the Bishop of Antioch, the Bishop of Jerusalem, and the Bishop of Alexandria. Prior to this point, when there were issues to be debated in the church, those five bishops would come together, and sometimes the Bishop of Carthage, they would come together and they would work through the issue, a particular issue of Christian doctrine. But when the Great Schism occurred, the Western Church, the Bishop of Rome, separates from the four other bishops. And the Western Church, centered in Rome, claimed that they were the one true universal church. They were the universal church, and the word for universal is Catholic. And the Catholic church, which they claimed to be, was headquartered in Rome. And so thus, it became the Roman Catholic Church, okay? At the same time, what happened was that the Eastern Church, which is headquartered here in Constantinople, is that they claimed that they held to the correct teaching, that they held that they were the traditional church and that they had the right doctrine. They had ortho, correct, doctrine, doxa. And so they became known as the Orthodox Church. The other thing that the Eastern Church did is that they were committed to using in their, Bible, in their church services biblical Greek and how the whole service was conducted. And so they used biblical Greek. Um, they used a Greek Bible. And so they were the Greek church that used the Greek Bible, and, that, and then their claim was that they held to the Orthodox faith. So they became the Greek Orthodox Church. Okay, and This occurs in 1054. Well, as this division is starting to brew, what happens is that the bishop of Rome is in a conflict with the bishop of Constantinople. So the bishop of Rome and the bishop of Constantinople, they excommunicate each other. And the bishop of Rome says to the bishop of Constantinople, you don't have any authority to excommunicate me, I'm going to excommunicate you. And the bishop of Constantinople said to the bishop of Rome, you don't have any authority to excommunicate me, therefore I'm going to excommunicate you. And it splits in 1054. It's called the Great Schism. All right, fast forward 500 years. We're in the time of the Renaissance and in the time of the Reformation. And what country did the Reformation begin in? Germany. 
Germany with Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And the early reformers understood and they knew, and it was obvious, that most of the people could not read Latin and could not understand the Latin church service. So they had the goal of bringing the Bible into the language that people could understand. But the only thing that they had most readily available was the Latin Vulgate. So the first English translation of the Bible was a translation from the Latin into the English. Now that's okay, but it's one step removed from the original languages. Well, during the Renaissance, one of the mantras of the Renaissance was a phrase called ad fontes in, in, in Latin, and what that meant was back to the sources. Meaning, we're not going to listen to what tradition says or what hierarchy says or what someone just says. We want to go back to the original sources and figure this out. So, they went back to the Greek and Hebrew texts. And there was a man by the name of um, Desiderius Erasmus, and he was a Roman Catholic scholar who was Dutch. And Erasmus, what he did is that he went out and he gathered together all of the Greek manuscripts that he could find. And so he gathers together all the Greek manuscripts here in the Western Church, and all the manuscripts that he can gather together are found in the Byzantine collection. Okay? So Erasmus, this Roman Catholic, comes up and he publishes a Greek text. And it was called the Textus Receptus. He pulls them together and he publishes one Greek text. And these Greek manuscripts include the phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. But the Latin Vulgate did not include it. So Martin Luther comes along during the Reformation and he and others seek to translate the Bible into the local language. Translate into the local language, and so for Luther, he translates that into German, and due to the invention of the press, the Bible begins to spread. And so at the time of the Reformation, all biblical translations, that would include the King James Version, the Geneva Version, Luther's Version into German, and the documents and the Bible that was used to study for the Westminster Confession of Faith, all of them were based upon the Textus Receptus, Erasmus's compilation of the Greek from the Byzantine manuscripts. Now, let me ask you. The Byzantine collection, the Textus Receptive, includes the phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. The Latin Vulgate, which was used in the Latin Mass, omits the phrase. How do you think the Reformers responded when they discovered that the Greek text includes this phrase and the Roman Catholic Church has omitted it? How do you think they respond? They say, we are absolutely going to include it, right? And so it was included immediately in, in Protestant worship, and we're going to absolutely do this, and in the translations that they have of the New Testament. Also, it is a little bit worth mentioning that the Reformers had a little bit of affinity towards the Greek Orthodox Church. Reason for that was because... Um, the Greek Orthodox Church, one, they used New Testament Greek as their language and as their worship services instead of Latin. And the Greek Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, was as, as old as the Roman Catholic Church, so no one had a claim to being older than the other one. And, oh, by the way, the Greek Orthodox Church also was opposed to the Roman Catholic Church. So, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
So the Reformers are opposed to the Roman Catholic Church. The Greek Orthodox are opposed to the Roman Catholic Church. And so they start to have a little bit of sympathy towards one another. Here's the result. The result is this. The long ending, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, is not used in the Roman Catholic Church and not used in the Roman Catholic Mass, but it is used in Protestant worship and in Greek Orthodox worship across the world to today. Now, let's fast forward another 300 years to the 1800s. In the 1800s, what happens is that Western scholars discovered a new family of texts called the Alexandrian Collection of Texts. I say discovered because they dis- the Western church discovered them. However, the Greek Orthodox Church had them and had been using them for a long time. They just weren't so excited to share them with people outside of their own church. Okay? So they had them for a long time. And so the Greek Orthodox, and if you recall, excuse me, if you recall, the Alexandrian collection, far fewer, but they are much closer to the time of the apostles than the Byzantine collection. So we start to get a bit of a clearer picture here of what's happening. Here is the clearer picture. I know this is so clear. Here's the clearer picture. The Roman Catholic Church was not using the long ending. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox Church, has been using it. In 1800s, it's discovered that earlier manuscripts don't include it. So then the question becomes, did the Byzantine collection add the ending? Or did the Alexandrian collection lose the ending? And at the end of the day, it's an educated guess. And so the fact that is not in the Bible is not a certainty. What is true is that the long ending was included in the Bible in the Eastern Orthodox Church for 2,000 years. It is also true that it was not included in the Bible in the Western Church for 1,700 years. And it is true that it has been in the Protestant Bible for 500 years. Until recently, it has been removed from the Protestant Bible in the Protestant West about 100 years ago. As I said, it was a complex issue. What do we do with all that? Here's my advice. Number one, prayerfully pray, I'm sorry, pray Joyfully and pray freely. That's number one. Whether you choose to pray for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory or not when you pray the Lord's Prayer is fine. And whether or not it is original to Matthew's text is also fine to debate. Our practice, my practice, is to say the ending because, one, it is scriptural, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has sustained it in the oldest branches of the church throughout the world for over 2,000 years. But if the church across the street doesn't say it, that's okay too. It's not worth getting upset about. And so whether you pray the long ending of the Lord's Prayer or not, I would say this. At some point in your prayers, you should pray it because it is scriptural. And if you recall, the the Lord's Prayer was given to us not to be some mystical incantation, but was given to us to be a framework to teach us how to pray. 
I hope that you've been using the um, extra Lord's Prayer that we've been putting on the sermon guides throughout the series. And what they are is modeling how the Lord's Prayer is a framework for prayer. In each week, there has been a series of biblical verses and biblical prayers grouped into the different headings to model how the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray. And also, particular thanks to Risa Philby, who's been the one who's been compiling for that, that for us on a weekly compiling that for us on a weekly basis. And so the Lord's Prayer, it's a framework to teach us how to pray. So yes, pray scripture. So that's number one. Pray freely and pray joyfully. Number two, if you're interested in looking into this further, and I'll just state this bluntly, I urge you to refrain from making ignorant conclusions. If you Google this, you will come across lots and lots and lots of web pages about this issue. And you will find lots and lots of web pages written by people who have read other people's blog posts and who maybe have read one, maybe two books on the subject, who are often very emotionally attached to a particular translation. And what happens is they come out and they start saying, ah, it's the, it's the Byzantine version. You can only use the Byzantine version. It's the Alexandrian version. You can only use the Alexandrian version. And people make very stark judgments and criticisms of other people based upon, in my opinion, a very ignorant and limited basis of knowledge. Because the scholars who know this stuff deeply and intimately, they are far more, far more nuanced in their positions, and they are also far more humble in their conclusions than most anything you will find posted on the internet about this. So pray freely and joyfully, refrain from making ignorant conclusions. Number three, you get a question like this, and it kind of, ra- of course, it raises some questions, and maybe this raised more questions for you than it answered, and I'm happy to answer those if you've got questions about this. But point number three is this, trust your Bible. Like, trust your Bible. Modern English translations are very good. The ESV, the 1984 NIV Bible, not the one that's currently being printed, the NASB, they are very good translations. And the scholarship and the manuscript selection in terms of the Greek and Hebrew that's behind them is very, very, very good. Also, just want to give a, a precursor to controversy in the next decade, is that recent discoveries in biblical studies in the last 10 years have been tremendous. And... They have, the discoveries have dramatically increased confidence in the reliability and accuracy of the Greek text that we have. And I would say they have dramatically increased confidence in the reliability of the reliability and accuracy of the text, and the confidence that we had before was already very high. And recent discoveries have made that even higher. And I anticipate that in my lifetime, there will be a new English translation of the Bible based upon these discoveries that will be even more accurate than what we currently have. And when that comes out, I will look at that with excitedness, with optimism, with a healthy dose of skepticism as should be there. But I will look forward to having an even more accurate text than what we already have. 
But as I said at the beginning, the text that we have today, scholars are over 99% confident or over, are confident that over 99% of the text that we have is actually what was written by the original apostles and the original authors of Scripture. In the areas where there are debate, there is not a significant, it's not a significant issue, meaning the meaning doesn't really change. For example, on this passage, what is being debated about whether or not this was in Matthew or not? What is being debated is this. Did Jesus, when he was teaching people to pray, did he include a passage of Scripture that he memorized when he was a kid? Did Jesus quote Scripture when he was teaching people how to pray? That's the issue of debate over the Lord's Prayer. Now, we already know that there are two versions of the Lord's Prayer recorded, one in Matthew and one in Luke, and they're slightly different. And, as I've argued, I believe the Lord's Prayer is a framework to teach us how to pray. But my guess is that over the ministry of Jesus, there were more than two occasions when Jesus taught people how to pray. As an itinerant preacher who preached to crowds all over the countryside and who traveled around preaching pretty much the same content wherever he went, I am guessing that Jesus taught people how to pray on many occasions, and I am also guessing, I said guess, I am also guessing that Jesus did not use the exact same words every time he spoke in every situation. So what do we do with that? Is don't make a mountain out of a molehill. The issues, the differences here are not significant. So pray freely, pray joyfully, or refrain from making ignorant conclusions, and trust your Bible and study it and know it more deeply. Now, having said all of that, that was a whole lot about the text without actually considering the text itself. So what are we praying when we pray, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever? Amen. And the point is very simple, and I'm just going to state it succinctly. When we conclude our prayer with this phrase, what we are doing is that we are concluding our prayer resting in the truth that God is in control. We are concluding our prayers resting in the truth that God is in control. Imagine with me for a moment that you work for Nav Air. I know that's really difficult for most of you, but imagine with me for a moment that you work for Navair. And imagine that you've got a number of concerns about things that are happening in the organizations, maybe things that are happening in your division or your department or concerns about your particular project. And so you've got a number of requests to change the way that things are being run and the way that things are occurring. So you go to Vice Admiral Peters, And you come to him and you express to him your concerns and you express to him your your requests. And you're very clear about that. And it is quite possible that at the end of making your request known that you would say something like this to the admiral. You would say, Admiral, thank you for hearing me. But I know that this is your command and it's not my command. That ultimately, this is your decision, and it's not my decision. And ultimately, this reflects upon your record and not upon my record. So I will support whatever you decide, and I will rest in that decision. 
and you can rest because you did your part in making you did your part in making the request known, and so now it's up to him for doing his part. So when we conclude the Lord's prayer with this phrase, what we are saying is this: Father, I have brought my concerns and my requests to you. And at the end of the day, this is about your kingdom and not about mine. This is your decision and it is not mine. It is about the exercise of your power and not my power. And about the concern for your glory and not my glory. Therefore, I will rest because you are my good and loving and almighty heavenly Father forever and ever. And I will rest in that. Amen. So as the people of God, let us join with the church around the globe and pray the Lord's Prayer together. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And give praise to the Lord as his people, declaring his glory forever and ever.